0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Christian Lang, head of strategy at and Court, a self-described legal app store for legal technology. Like many of his generation, Christian's career path has featured the twists and turns that go hand-in-hand in hand with innovation in the legal profession. From his early days on political campaigns to corporate big law, and finally his current stint in legal tech, Christian brings his passion for grassroots organizing and self-described builder personality to everything he does. Listen in to learn more about his path to reign in court and what's next for the New York Legal Tech Meetup and Inspire Legal. Well, Christian, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule. We're talking today with Christian Lang, who describes himself as a recovering corporate lawyer who's involved in the innovation world, legal tech, and a whole variety of activities that we're going we're to dive into. Uh, but Christian, I understand we're catching you before you travel to Amsterdam for a uh, reign in court. Will this be the first time you've traveled overseas since the pandemic started? Since the pandemic started, yes. I was
1: fortunate to have a, a pretty decent book of international travel before that for work, but looking forward to getting on a
0: plane again. Are you looking forward to it, or is it a little little nervous about it, or is it all good? You know, I think by the, by the, by the time I go, and I will have been
1: kind of fully vaccinated and fully up to speed on that, I think I'll be, think I'll be comfortable at that stage. So That's good.
0: Excited. I'm one of those people that spent most of my life on airplanes, so the last year has been sort of a weird dynamic not getting on a plane and traveling. How have you found the movement to a almost completely virtual world? You know, mix, mixed feelings. So our, our company has been very virtual uh,
1: since its inception. So it wasn't disruptive to the way we conducted our business for the most part, you know, still missed the in-person meetings, et cetera. That said, I'm also a huge believer that some of the most valuable interactions you have in, in a social, in a work context or anything are just those little incidental interactions that spark a thought or inspire you about something. And I didn't even realize it was missing. I had an experience, I don't know, it was probably six months ago, so six months into the pandemic. And I had listened to a podcast or something with a, with a grab bag of contributors. And it's, I, I remember thinking, it just kept sparking all these thoughts and I started having all these brainstorms and it was great. I was listening to it and I was like, wait a minute, this is this used to happen routinely when I would go to the meetups and when I would do all the things in person that I have. And I think when we're doing this distributed work thing, we're all just staying in our lanes. You know, We're having conversations that are scheduled, and that's great. And you can be very productive in that narrow band, but the stuff outside that band, which really is that creative space that really generates, I think, a lot of transformative work, that's the thing that's missing. So I think over time, it will be a significant liability for people.
0: Yeah, you do miss that spontaneity. It's... it's- Offset a little bit by the by the ability to connect with people who might not otherwise be able to join. They would have to get on a plane or travel to it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how, in God willing, a post pandemic world, that balance gets struck between virtual connectivity and in person connectivity. Yeah,
1: it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how it shakes out. But you're right that that is the huge silver lining is that even if they were. Kind of illusory those those boundaries those geographical boundaries now have been well and truly kind of broken down in a meaningful way so
0: yeah and i'm not sure those boundaries will ever go back up i think uh, this is it's i don't know what you've seen on the technology front but I, I grant you through zoom some of the video technologies have improved and have become broader acceptability by the masses but it's not brand new technology but the pandemic has has sort of forced adoption at a a higher rate of at least that technology than I think it ever would have before. Are you seeing similar dynamics play out in the tech Uh, world?
1: Yeah, well, but sticking in the legal world, I mean, I, I think you're right, and I think it's fascinating. And I personally am incredibly curious to see how that does or does not affect the industry. On one hand, it's not new technology. On the other hand, Particularly at the, at the top tier of legal practice, this is not how lawyers and clients historically interacted. But, like, you know, we had a funny experience during our sound check where we were talking with you and Molly and looking around the room saying, What's in the room? I do think there's this interesting, you know, humanizing element to have these face to face Zoom conversations and people being in street clothes and people being at home. And I wonder how stripping away the facade of you know the trappings of the big fancy office and the suits and the other things that were just kind of part of the, the big law world. I wonder how that will or will not affect like lawyer client dynamics. And I actually I'm very intrigued to see how that plays out.
0: It's gonna it's gonna be fascinating. And one of the pieces of advice I give to some of the uh, less senior lawyers that I talk to and work with. Is exactly what you've just said. Use the technology because you're you're stripping away the facade to to steal your term, but use it to create a sense of connectivity and empathy with people because you're seeing them in a in a more vulnerable environment than you otherwise before They don't have the trappings of the office and the fancy clothes. They're you know their cats in the background or whatever, and use it as an opportunity, even though it's not the way we typically build personal relationships to build personal relationships that you could in turn use when we go back live. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see how people do that. Right. No, it's a great point. Well, you've had the most interesting career. Uh, we're going to get to reign in court in a moment where you're head of strategy, but you've also done a number of other things, inspire legal, the legal tech startup, a number of efforts aimed towards law, law firm associates. Tell us a little bit about what led you to, this path you started at UVA, and then where you got your bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. but you took but you took some time mm-hmm. off, and I shouldn't say took some time off. You didn't go straight to law school. <laughs> didn't go straight through, yeah. Uh, you started a not-for-profit, mm-hmm. uh, doing what? Uh,
1: promoting civic education in Georgia public schools, and that really actually that was a pretty formative in terms of my life trajectory. It did those pre-law school years were pretty important to kind of determining where I went. So I had been contemplating a pretty traditional career path and was interviewing with the management consulting firms, which is kind of what you do coming out of UVA with a bachelor's degree, I guess. Um, And I had a good friend in college who had begun work on an effort to leverage some of the things being done by Larry Sabato Center for Politics and the Youth Leadership Initiative there and bring them back to our home state of Georgia. And I'd always been very civically engaged and got excited about what he was working on. So we, we, we joined together and created a nonprofit entity to promote civic education in Georgia public schools, very experiential. So things like you know mock elections around the 2004 presidential, bringing some online tech so more kids can participate and the social studies teachers don't have to bear the burden of trying to run a Pencil and paper process, you know, mock debates, etc. So instead of taking a traditional job, I moved, I moved back home and, and tried to you know, help get that off the ground. And you know, we were young and didn't know too much what we were doing, but it was it was fun. It was a great learning experience. We got some incredible backing from local companies, Home Depot and Coca Cola gave us some money, and we ultimately had over a couple of hundred thousand kids vote in the mock election we helped facilitate at the for that 2004 presidential cycle. And then I, I, ultimately. <laughs> I ended up buying a one way ticket to Paris a- after the election for reasons, you know, to not alienate half your readers I won't I won't go into or your listeners. Um, <laughs> but just, you know, wanting to to kind of get away for a bit and I I missed the opportunity to study abroad when I was in college. And that just worked out phenomenally well because when I had still been at UVA, I had applied to a bike tour company that turned out they lost a the tour guide right before I was due to arrive. And so I I got a phone call driving down the street in 2004 on this newfangled thing called Skype, which I'd never heard of. My boss is like, future boss, like, hey, I'm sitting in Paris calling you on a computer. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> anyway, so I, I, I ended up on very unexpectedly getting a job. I was planning just to you know wash dishes or sleep in a park or do whatever I had to do to make it work. And I ended up getting a job, giving bike tours of the city of Paris and Monet's house and gardens at uh, Givani in Normandy. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a year until the then-Secretary of State of Georgia, which is – that's the office that oversees civic education, so we used to work with the Secretary of State. Kathy Cox, she decided to throw her hat in the ring to run for governor, and I thought she'd be a tremendous candidate in great for state uh, and was a great leader. So I, I moved back and clawed my way onto her campaign and worked on that campaign until we, we lost, and I decided to take the LSAT since I didn't have anything else to do.
0: Yeah, we a lot of us sort of got to law school for that for that reason. You were director of online strategies. Now you'd done some tech work before in your prior not for profit. It sounds like was this sort of the first sort of venture into how you apply technology and how you communicate online for you anyway.
1: Yeah, I think it was well, that was kind of the ice breaking event, and at that time I didn't really know much about it. Um, it was brand new. You know, this was the 2004 cycle, so it was uh, or 2006, I guess at that point. But still, you know, brand new. The Obama campaign hadn't come and shown us how it was all done yet. You know? So right. um, we, were, we were running email lists and raising money online, small dollar donations, and running a website and trying to figure out how that content strategy worked. It, you know, At a very bootstrappy type of campaign, we weren't one of these Goliath races that had lots of natural attention and, and, and funding. And so I was lucky enough to kind of get tapped to, to help do that and figure that out. And it was super fun, really interesting. And that, yeah, I, that may have—I I don't really attribute that, ex, you know, that experience to being the thing that got the ball rolling for me. But actually, now looking back, it probably was pretty important.
0: Yeah, you know, it's—I've I've seen a number of folks in the legal tech space that have had moments like that or have had experiences like that where they're not classically trained in technology, they're not Python programmers or anything like that, but they've had. Mm-hmm connections with technology that have really sort of accelerated their movement into that. And I know you work a lot with, with the legal tech startup, the meetups and stuff. Do you see the same dynamic among people you work with?
1: Yeah, I do. I often do think there's that a bit of that aha moment. And there's also people, I think, like me, who were kind of repressed technologists. Like, so I grew up being a math science kid. I mean, that was what I did until I was in high school. And I had this wildly misguided notion that if I went and got an in- engineering degree or something, I was relegating myself to a life of like solitude in a IT closet, pushing you know, not oh, talk to anybody. So I went to like sad. I uh, know, yeah. So anyway, so I just I I decided I, I went from taking all the A science and math APs. I didn't take a single math or science college uh, credit in, in college. And looking back, I, I would have loved to have done that. But anyway, I, I was somebody who I loved that kind of stuff. And then once I started to have that experience that gave you access to it and made it, you know, just made it accessible and tangible. Yeah. I kind of latched onto it pretty hard. And it's one of my favorite parts of, of my job today, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a minute, but I, I've actually gotten to learn a lot about technology and it's fun. It's, I mean, it's one of the things I loved about being in law school. It's this whole new domain that's really interesting and rich and you're learning about it for the first time. And I, I had that same experience when I started to get into the tech space, just incredibly engaging and energizing just to have this whole new body of knowledge that you just are plowing through.
0: You jokingly said that you went to law school because what else would you do? But there had to be more to it than that. What, what, what drew you to the law and what continues to excite you about that particular domain?
1: Yeah, there, there were a few things. So I was a middle child. I grew up being told every day I was gonna be a lawyer and probably because I was a middle child, I was like, absolutely not, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> and I, and I, I made it until my mid twenties thinking there was no, no chance I would practice law there were experiences on the campaign. I was technically on the finance staff and we would go do all the fundraisers and things. And I was constantly interacting with these really interesting people who had JDs in their background, who were you know, CEOs of companies or were doing other things. And it really broadened my understanding of what law could be. That coupled with my experience of living in Paris. So you know, I, I kind of expatriated in a pretty politically disillusioned way in, in that sort of place and living abroad and being abroad really taught me just how deeply I love this country. And you can't think of it as broken or flawed. You got to think of it as a big, beautiful, unfinished project that patriots are called to improve on and work on. And that's what it's all about. And so I came back energized, wanting to help and be a part. And then when I had the experience on the campaign of seeing that a legal degree could be a fantastic stepping stone to doing that in lots of different ways, not just the traditional legal practice way. That's where it all kind of started to come together for me. And the thing that really put me over the top, I'm a deeply curious person and I get so frustrated when I don't understand things. And law provides the background rules and the rules of the road that governs almost everything that we do and how our economy works and how our world works. And I just, I knew I would never be happy. Unless I had access to that and that language myself and knew it and did not have to go to somebody else like I do when I have a medical problem, I got to go to a medical practitioner to tell me what's going on, I knew I couldn't be satisfied with that, so I decided I had to get to law school if only to learn it, and then the process of applying to law school in that first year of law school taught me I actually loved it and was really excited to be a part of it so i I was weird i I was one of these weirdos that really liked the first year that was my <laughs> okay that's a, that is a little that's a little out there, Christian.
0: Many of us did not have
1: that experience. It was just literally the entire first year of law school. was all these things I've always wanted to know. I've always wanted to know how they work. And you get to learn all that core doctrinal law, which some people aren't passionate about, but I just, I really soaked it up.
0: You then had, after graduating from NYU, is is one of those careers in the law that's always remarkably successful. Clerked for a year, then went went to work for Davis Polk for a few years of a fantastic uh, law firm. And then you had another shift. Where you went over to start a km company tell us what caused you to sort of move away from this big law career path you were on and doing very well at to the world of startups and tech and immersing in that a quick background point about myself so i you know i am very deliberately
1: not a big planner like i don't i'm not somebody who sits down and thinks about where I'm trying to get long-term and tries to stay on a certain path. Like I very much am a you know keep your head on a swivel, play the cards you're dealt, and, and make the most of opportunities as they present themselves. I entered the law firm thinking it was unlikely I was going to be there f- for an extended period of time, and I ended up being the last man standing in the 2010 class at NYU's, at, at uh, Davis Polk's M&A group, and really enjoyed practice and a lot more than I think a lot of people do at the, in the associate ranks in, in, the, in the firm never seriously entertained the notion of continuing the career, but ended up being there a lot longer than I thought. When it came time to really start thinking about what would come next, I kind of took a step back and I was like, okay, what do I, what do I actually need to you know, build the life I'm looking to have and, and that would be fulfilling? And I've always been somebody who's been, and this is, this is part of the reason why I didn't think I would want to stay practicing law. I've always been somebody who's been very interested in and in satisfied by building and creating things. And you know, I think to, to be happy as a lawyer, you have to be, you know, you got to want to be somebody else's trusted advisor. You're it's a it's a agent, it's a service industry. It's an agency role, and that's deeply meaningful and honorable work. Certain people love that sort of work, and certain other people don't. And so, I knew I wanted to create and start and build something. I knew I wanted to do something that would have future relevance. I didn't want to do something that just paid the bills for my lifetime and then went away and wasn't a building block of you know, human progress. So I was like, okay. And so that kind of got me focused on the technology industry as, as kind of what was going to be most important for the future. And then as, as you and I have sp- spoken a little, about, a little bit about in the past, I got very... I personally am an incredibly, as I describe it, social thinker in the sense that I do my best thinking and analysis, reacting to what other smart people are saying and hearing it. And it's a very interactive process for me. And it's very relevant to how uh, high-end advisory work works, right? You, don't, you never sit down w- with a clean sheet of paper. You're always looking for the best precedent, taking the next step in an incredibly complicated scenario. And I became very passionate about, okay, how do we better curate the brain trust of a high-end advisory firm? And expose that learning and really take the next steps so you 're not reinventing wheels, and I actually thought that that was a domain in the technology space where legal could actually lead and i'm not sure, I'm not sure there's a lot of technology subverticals where you're going to find like the cutting edge technology and legal. I actually think knowledge management and expertise management is actually one where where we can really have, we have the thorniest challenge to solve at a high end firm like law firm so that's that was the intersection I got really passionate about, and I pr- had some very strong personal views about how to do that. And so when I, I I kind of refined a potential product view, at least from a user experience perspective, and then kind of pulled the ripcord and jumped out the window.
0: There's a number of things that are interesting about sort of that story, but one of them is you started from what you wanted the user experience to be and worked backward to the technology for how to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. I see a number of people doing startups and ideas that they're starting from the technology and and seeing what comes out of it. They're, you know, a solution in search of a problem do you find that sort of thought dynamic that you went through looking at the outcome and working backwards the technology an increasingly common way of people thinking about it in legal tech particularly i think so for the following
1: reason like when i look around at the tools on the legal tech landscape that i think are the most interesting and the most successful they're almost inevitably designed by somebody who was solving their own problem that they understood well so it's a former lawyer founder who knows exactly what they need to achieve and can really and can make sure you know you're not building a superfluous thing you're really squeezing it down to the nugget of what needs to be done and focused on solving the actual challenge and i think those companies having success are a testament to to why that it's important to take that approach i mean we particularly at the high end of the legal market this is not maybe not as applicable to kind of b2c consumer legal tech which is hugely important but but at that at that highest level of practice in in that enterprise tier, it's really hard from the outside to understand exactly how these things work. And there's a lot of things about that model that look silly and inefficient from the outside that are critical to delivering the kind of advice that firms of the top tier need to deliver. It's funny, this dovetails a lot with a lot of the writing I used to do on associate training and success. There's a lot of things that like young kids coming up, I don't, I don't want to do that. Right? Yeah, I, you know, it, but it is absolutely essential to crafting the advice and honing the skills of the lawyers. So I always find that people who have a very specific vision around what outcome needs to be achieved and, and then finds a way to tech enable that is more successful than working the other way.
0: You're currently head of strategy for Rain in Court, and I suspect the analysis, uh, I want you to tell us a little bit about what Rain in Court does, and I want to come back to inspire Legal and the legal tech startup. But start by telling us a little bit what Rain & Court does. And I suspect in terms of selecting the software to participate in the portfolio of services, are you looking at it much the way you just described it? People who are solving for a problem and working backward to the tech?
1: You know, it's funny. Uh, we we love those, but as I'll describe in a minute, we are we think of ourselves as kind of a neutral intermediary in middleware, and we're not trying to pick winners and losers. So it's very much an open platform. But let me let me tell you a little bit wh- about what it is, and then we can talk about the 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 technology partners we're working with. Rain and Court is a single platform for legal technology that's intended to help law firms and corporate legal departments do essentially three things. You know, quickly find and evaluate technologies. Securely test and deploy them, and then strategically manage them. Essentially, trying to give them the best of the benefits of cloud technologies while not having to give up the control and stability that legal enterprises have enjoyed by running technologies on-prem, et cetera. And we do that by leveraging the, the power of the Kubernetes ecosystem and the portability of applications that that enables. You can think of it, the best analogy to get your head around it is the app store. So we are essentially hmm. building an app store for law firms and corporate legal departments. There's half of that that people always understand. It's the, where do I, where I go find things? So we have something called the solution store, and it's just what it sounds like with one exception. It's not marketing material it's a bunch of it's a very heavy content exercise we're writing like mini gartner research reports on all the tools the the other part though that people don't always get you know the the transformative part of the app store in the consumer space was the ability to click a button and automatically deploy pre-tested apps into a computing environment you controlled directly and where it connected to everything you needed it to work with on that same right. device because of the maturation of the kubernetes ecosystem and the cloud native technology movement we now have the ability to bring that technology consumption experience to enterprise and legal. And so reigning court, the heart of it is pipes and plumbing and automation in a true digital platformization layer that is driving standardization in the way that vendors make themselves available and giving firms the ability to bring their own infrastructure and deploy tech wherever they want to. You can almost think of it at a high level of abstraction like Airbnb in terms of this digital platformization experience. And we are we definitely think of ourselves as kind of creating that marketplace and trying to make that legal marketplace work. And the nice thing about it with that techni- and this is why this technology paradigm is just it's It's taking over all verticals, not just in legal, because it gives enterprise the ability when they want to use tech and they have sensitive information, it gives them the ability to bring apps to the data instead of asking them to send data out to the apps. If you think about running a SaaS strategy, what you're doing is you're duplicating a bunch of sensitive information. You're sending different copies out to different backends you don't control directly. This paradigm now lets you bring the apps into your environment, whatever that is, virtual private cloud data center, and run things behind the security perimeter you're comfortable with. So, so it's, it, we think it's a, it's a pretty transformative effort.
0: Who's your, uh, who's your market? I, I understand large law firms, corporate legal departments, but within those organizations, what's the sales cycle? How are you penetrating those markets? Yeah, well, let me, I'll, let me answer that in two pieces. So just a quick pause on the market
1: itself, like the entities themselves. We were very lucky to get this venture off the ground with the support of twenty of the biggest and best law firms in the world. A couple of whom led the Series A round of investment, and they all helped us understand and define the requirements and what they needed. So you can see on, on our website who those firms are. But that was hugely important. Now, to answer your specific question as to who are we speaking to and trying to solve problems for internally to that firm, it's actually interesting. I mean, anyone who's in the legal technology space will tell you selling to a law firm is a complex sale and you got to get a bunch of stakeholders involved. And that's certainly true for us. You know, our value propositions are kind of almost kaleidoscopic. If you look at them from different angles, there's lots of different value propositions. And so in my own head, I kind of think about it this way, the the core of reigning court that pipes and plumbing and automation around multi-cloud orchestration, that's solving a security challenge. That is really important to CIOs and CISOs and about data governance and privacy. So I think about that step one of that sale is really being about selling that security folks and helping them understand why this is so transformative for them. Step two, once you have that pipes and plumbing in place, what you are enabling is access to pretty much anything in the market, regardless of the deployment model, as long as that vendor is willing to deliver it to you in that standardized way. So you no longer have to choose between security and the app that you need at the time. You can get both. So um, the second audience I think of is that KM and innovation type. Hopefully in the future, the lawyers themselves, but essentially those professional buyers who, who are looking for features and functionality. So that market, I think that's the, the, the second tier buyer that we're really, really focused on. And then the third tier buyer that down the road, this is not today, but down the road, What we're doing actually is probably most important for management committee level stakeholders for the following reason: when you have that deployment automation in place, you know you can deploy at the moment of need. When you have the right services automation and you have the right interoperability of solutions, which we're we're driving, so you can literally plug in a new tech piece like a Lego block and it just works in an operation ecosystem. What you've done is enabled strategic flexibility. To explore new business models, to understand total cost of ownership of technology and price offerings properly. In this world where we can see the dynamics in the market as to firms consolidating and who's winning, who's losing, firms are gonna need to be increasingly nimble to find where they wanna practice, where they wanna dig in, where they wanna grow and strategically expand. And that future must be tech enabled. The winners will be tech enabled. And this is the sort of platform that allows you to do that nimbly and tactically in the ways that you need.
0: Are you seeing people recognizing the need to be tech enabled? And has that been sped up by the pandemic?
1: I think the answer to those questions is, is unequivocal yes. So the, the second one is easier to answer. I think, you know, you'll hear a lot of people say it, but I can testify to it firsthand. The pandemic has broken a lot of important ice, um, not just to force people to use things that they might have been reluctant to use in a very busy workday previously. But even more importantly, I think it's instilled a lot of confidence that they can manage significant change in the way they operate successfully, which is what I think we saw. All these law firms, when they moved overnight to distributed workforces, there were very few major hitches in that process, and firms executed on that plan very, very well. And so I think it it helps give them confidence that they can do these things. On the former question, I, I think you do. I think you really do. You know, there are still a tier of firms whose bread and butter is the bet the company litigation, and that. Incredibly risky, complex, multi billion dollar transaction. And in those cases, the marginal like cost benefits, for example, of having something done more efficiently with technology, maybe those aren't as compelling. In, mar- in parts of the market where it's more commoditized offerings, yeah, you're starting to have a lot of emphasis on, on more efficiency. But I think everyone top to bottom is starting to recognize the human resources benefits, the risk management benefits. I mean, why these things are so important. I mean, heck, some of these tools you know like you know people are talking about changing the way timekeeping is done automating that process changing the way transactions are managed and everyone's thinking about them I in mean, the first instance is how many dollars can i save how efficient can it be i think people are now starting to realize well wait a minute this is going to help me understand how transactions actually unfold like what is the standard deviation where are the choke points where are the forks in the road that i need to be aware of when I start thinking about how I staff and how I price and, and, and what customers I retain and which, you know, what, what clients I actually try to exit, like all of those strategic calculations need to be enabled by that business intelligence that's only going to be gotten by having standardized processes and tech that's capturing the key data points. So I, I do think there's been a real maturation in the thinking about how important it is recently. And I think that's probably a one-way track.
0: Yeah. It's, it strikes me that once that trend starts going down that track, it's not going to turn around and come back. The other way, even right. even once we're through the pandemic, uh, we've got a few minutes left. Tell, talk to us a little bit about some of your other uh, ventures, particularly legal text meetup and Inspire Legal. You're doing a number of other things, particularly geared towards sharing expertise with law firm associates. Your blogs, and they can find that on your website, christianling.com. Yeah. But talk to us a little bit about Inspire Legal and Le- the legal tech meetup. Sort of what what's the genesis of those and how are they contributing to the legal tech environment?
1: Yeah, it's the, um, I'm glad we'll talk about them. They're, they're probably the things that are nearest and dearest to my heart. So when I was leaving Davis Polk to try to start this little KM-focused venture we talked a bit about, I had no idea that this fun, funny, weird little legal technology vertical of ours even existed. Like, I just didn't even know it was a thing. You know, I'd been in my office churning away. And then once I started making the rounds at meetups in town and trying, going to some of the conferences and trying to find a technical co founder, I got exposed to it and I fell in love with it. And I started, I started doing things like going to the trade shows, going to ILTA, going to Legal Week, et cetera. And I had this wonderful experience doing that in the community I found there. But I also found a couple of things. One, I found it was somewhat episodic, it would come together around the trade shows and then go away. And then two months later, it would come back together again. And then two, I found it was really important infrastructure for important innovation-related conversations, but those conversations were not being had in a, in a truly kind of ecumenical way where you had people from different parts of the ecosystem. You know, The, the hearts of trade shows, these are sales endeavors, right? And there's nothing right. wrong with that, but you, you segment your audience if you want to sell something effectively. So anyway, I thought I saw a need, and originally I kind of resisted doing this, and one day I just couldn't help myself, so I threw up a meetup group on meetup.com, but I saw a need to try to put some community infrastructure around it, at least in, in New York. And so we started what I thought was going to be a very small little group where we might meet in a bar and have a happy hour every once in a while. And next thing you know, we grew a community of 1,600-plus lawyers and technologists that has developed in this really supportive and interesting and engaged community of people who want to think holistically about legal innovation challenges. And so that's what we do. We run programming you know, panels and happy hours we do do and drinks and demos events. And we've got some workshopping events coming on. Like We're about to do a series on open source technologies that's very cool and just try to kind of educate and inspire and shine a spotlight on, on what's happening. And then that meetup community was the jumping off point for the Inspire Legal Conference I run. Again, a bit of a reaction to the other conferences, which are fantastic, but they're all about sales. And you know, I, I actually think one of the things that holds us back most, and this dovetails with what we were talking about earlier about lawyer founders, I think one of the biggest challenges we have is that the challenges that we're facing in the legal industry are not deeply and well enough understood and understood from all the different lenses that, to which they might be relevant. I think the challenges that exist in different parts of the legal landscape are often very similar and resonant with one another. And I wanted to bring together communities of people not to solution around it or try to sell things for it but really dig in and more deeply and holistically understand it. So Inspire Legal was kind of an unconference, if you will. We've got a lot of people involved, kind of workshopped, and really tried to better define and prioritize and understand challenges facing the legal industry. I mean, we've had a lot of fun with it, and hopefully it's been enriching.
0: From the description, it sounds like you've got a number of different disciplines that participated in it. Lawyers, of course, but technologists, developers, I am presuming. Is part of the challenge you face and part of the solution you're bringing, sometimes those groups talk in different languages? A technologist may not understand how lawyers describing the problem, even though it seems incredibly clear to the lawyer and vice versa. Is part of what you're doing bridging those gaps and getting people on a common page so they can talk through approaches and solution sets?
1: Yeah, I think I think so. Less so from like a direct agency perspective, more so just about bringing all the right people together and making sure that they're interacting with one another. As opposed to sitting in the audience listening to a a keynote or a lecture or somebody speaking, you know, we we do tweak programming. Like when when we dive into a complicated subject, AI or blockchain or something, we will put a primer up top to have somebody who knows really make sure we can level set an audience. But I'm I'm a big fan of just making sure you've got a mixed crowd and you're giving them an opportunity to really dig in together. And talk and understand people. Human beings can communicate with one another really effectively as long as that's facilitated. To your point, you got to find that fire starter, that icebreaker to get people talking and get them communicating. And so I'm less trying to do that intermediation directly, and more design things and structures and events and communities that will facilitate that kind of intellectual intercourse in a way that I think is super important and hard to do.
0: What's coming up next for Inspire Legal that folks ought to know about? So you've got stuff on the horizon. So it was an annual event. When we started
1: it, um, we had a first one, then we came around and had a 2.0. We decided to take this year off and not do a virtual event because that in-person discussion community and really rubbing elbows with people you, that you don't normally interact with, that's the most valuable piece. So as soon as we, you know, we'll get Inspire Legal 3.0 running, as soon as everyone's going to be comfortable congregating again. So you know, we probably are not within three to six months yet, but I, I don't think we're that far off. So I will be very excited to get it going.
0: It will be great to uh, to get to that point in the world where you can do it. Yeah, uh, Christian, we're at, we're out of time. I want to thank you again for taking the time to join us. It's been fascinating. Good luck with all of your various ventures, and good luck with your trip over to Amsterdam. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.